Hey everyone, welcome to the last episode of Season 1, or should I say, This School Year's Required Reading. We appreciate all that you guys have done to make our podcast fun and successful, and next year we promise, next school year of course, uh, August, we promise we'll come back with even more stuff. In the meantime, we appreciate your contributions to our show. We appreciate you sharing us. Please review us. Please get us in the hands of people who also want to hear the show. I mean, we're looking for guests. We're looking for suggestions from the audience. And we want to hear from you guys. In the meantime, please enjoy this discussion on uh, the book Tribe by Younger. And I want to thank you guys, our audience. I want to thank my co-host, Mike. And I want to thank everyone at our school, Marist, and in our community that supported us along the way. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to the final required reading of the season. This week, we're talking about Tribe, colon, on Homecoming and Belonging by Sebastian Younger. Uh, you might remember him from such other books as The Perfect Storm, uh, which became a movie starring a bunch of people who died. Uh, what was it? Marky Mark? George Clooney? George Clooney. Yeah. Right? Uh, weather? Yeah, Weather. The Storm. The Andrea Gale, The Boat. That's right. Yeah. The very definition of man versus nature. <laughs> man lost. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, this book is, well, it's uh, an analysis of why we need niche culture, about why we need groups to feel why a we part need of. each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's in some ways kind of a response to Robert Putnam's book at one point, Bowling Alone. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, which I think is maybe also a stay tuned, we'll say at one point. Um, Mike and I will talk about how the season will work after the, at the end of this, but first we should get a little bit into Mr. Younger. I'm Nick, I'm your host, and on panel we have... And I'm Mike. Hello. Um, so, uh, first, this is another one we've assigned to the class. Uh, it's a nice little quick read. It's right. like 120 pages, something like that. Um, and you're in, you're out. We taught this in the class in Scotia for a week, and that was because they were doing a project, so they didn't need that much. They had other things on their plate, so we gave right. them more time than they needed. And uh, Mike, so why did you want to do this book? Um, this goes back a couple of years. So it came out in 2016, and I liked Sebastian Younger. I mean, when the Perfect Storm came out, um, that was kind of a, a interesting year because Krakauer had a book out at the same time, right. and, and Younger, and just sort of like these these journalists that were making these bestsellers, and I saw a lot of interviews with him and liked him. And then, um, so he's all sort of on my radar. And then his films, Restrepo and Coringal, um, were about uh, where he, and he mentions that in this book as well, but he goes, as a journalist, he embeds himself with some units in Afghanistan um, and makes a film out of that time period there. And they're incredibly powerful and just as far as what the men are doing and facing and sort of how... Um, much sacrifice goes into the service there in in a, things that they're not quite sure why they're there, but they're still you know doing their job and, and being good soldiers about it. Um, and so that, those are powerful documentaries. I highly recommend those. And then so when this came out, I just thought, oh, Younger's got a new book, but it's good. Uh, and so I read it, and the class is relatively new, um, American Experiment. I was teaching it with 
Mike Strickland uh, at the time, and he went to the Citadel, so he has some deep contacts in military culture. And I thought, Mike, this would be great for this class because he talks about service, which we don't really talk about much, and and serving in wars and what that means. And so I thought it checked a lot of boxes. And we put it on the, like an optional. We had an optional summer reading list that year. And so some kids read it, but we never really talked about it much. And so this spring was the final year, like, okay, finally we're going to teach it and kids are going to read it and we'll get to talk about it. We can see how it goes, but um, that's the backstory on that. And I thought it, the idea about belonging and sort of what it means to be an American, what it means to be a human, um, sort of overlapped with what we touch on in the class. So I thought it would be good that way. As you mentioned, the size, it's short and quick reads, which is always important, I think, as a teacher. You don't want to scare the kids off. Um, so those are the reasons I picked it or, or pushed for it. Um, How about you? I mean, did you read it before I suggested it to you? No, I hadn't, actually. Um, I'd read a lot of the things. I, I've, of course, seen the movie Perfect Storm. I had seen uh, Restrepo. Had you read Perfect Storm? I had not. Oh, this is the first good. of his writing I had read. Okay. And I will say, like, I like the writing style. I think journalists have a lot to offer as far as, you know, minimalist writing, which is what they do very well. They're and good storytellers, ideally. Right? Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, uh, to have a piece of nonfiction be written in a style that is almost fictional in scope. I mean, we did Devil in the White City this season. That can be incredibly effective. Right. And so I was... I mean, obviously, since I had read it, I took your word for it. And it is intriguing in its idea. It almost would be something that I would suggest teaching first term next year, because it, then we can address his whole argument, which is we as Americans have this sense of tribalism, uh, which we can kind of define here in a second. I, I like what he's trying to do. Um, but I guess the question then is, is he successful? This is a very different kind of book than we've done before in that there are narratives within it, but there's not a lasting narrative throughout the whole thing. And because of that, I don't think this is going to sound like other of our episodes, but that's fine. Sure. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we're trying to approach other genres and I think that was hard for the students. And I remember the first day of class, we read the introduction where he just sort of talks about his sources. So it's not written as a research paper, but if you look back, he has a very extensive extensive bibliography. So yeah, it sure does. Um, like any good journalist, he's you know keeping track of his sources and uh, referring to those. And it's much more readable that way rather than you know using footnotes or parenthetical citations or something. Mm -hmm. But I think it it was a little off-putting for some of our students in that yeah, it's not quite nonfiction. Um, in with the arc of a story like we read before, I mean, it's not quite an opinion piece. He has these anecdotes to build his his argument. Um, so I think the students, many of them in their reviews, express frustration with that. Which I don't know if that's something we need to consider or it's still, it's worth exposing them to this, both for the argument and the form. Yeah, no, it, and it's interesting because we're talking essentially about a historiographical construct that he is then playing around with. And I mean, we can kind of get into this. Um, do you think, Mike, you could define what his definition of tribe is? Because that's one of the first questions you asked the students before they read it. Right. And then something we readdressed after they had read that first chapter or two. Right. I mean, it's at one point I've got to highlight, I'm going to um, probably get it wrong exactly, but essentially it's someone that'd be willing to defend 
and willing to sacrifice for. Or, yeah. um, I mean, on Roman numerals six or fourteen, excuse me, he says, "What I wanted was a destruction, mayhem, but the opposite, solidarity." And then at the bottom of the paragraph, he goes, "How do you become an adult in a society that doesn't ask you for sacrifice?" How do you become a man of a world that doesn't require courage? I mean, and in some ways, this is also a story about masculinity. Women play a part in it, but it's very much how does a man become a, a man? How does a man feel like he fits into a society, which I don't know if narrowing it helps or not, but that's what he chooses to do. Uh, I remember very early on, there's a chapter about asylums in Paris. He makes kind of a vignette about the idea that before the war, uh, suicides were much higher than during the war because when men could sign up to fight, they felt like they had a common right. cause. Right. Um, and so even you know even that kind of mental uh, assignment uh, was important too. Yeah, and as we were teaching it, I think I referenced it, and it it relates to um, a great one of my favorite all time essays, "The Catastrophe of Success" by yeah. um, Tennessee, Tennessee Williams. Williams, and he talks about how he was a struggling writer. Uh, glass menagerie opens huge and then suddenly he's living in lavish um you know live at room service and hotels and everyone's taking care of him and he finds it very a hollow existence um and he has a great line in there that security is a kind of death that the idea is everything's so comfortable that you're not struggling and you're made to struggle and you're made to have a cause and i think younger touches on that in a way, but I don't know if our kids get that or if they can at 16 years old, uh, the value of having that purpose, um, because they have so many struggles. It's just like, you know, got to get to class. I got to worry about this boy or girl looking at me the right way. Is my hair correct? You know, mm -hmm. um, um, those sort of things are different, but on the sort of existential struggle, uh, what it means to be a human and how do you feel value in society? Right. And I mean, the thesis of his book is on um, the bottom of 17, Roman numeral 17. It's about why for many people, war feels better than peace and hardship can turn out to be a great blessing. And disasters are sometimes remembered more fondly than weddings or tropical vacations. Humans don't mind hardships. In fact, they thrive on it. Uh, what they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people feel not necessary uh, or not feel necessary. It's time for that to end. Um, so, and, and that's, that's sort of, I think his contrarian take on the idea that war is good, not in, and he would be the first person to say that you know, what you experience in war and killing other humans is not good, but that bond that you create when you have that dependency on someone else. And so that's, I think that's the gist of it. And this is a long way to answer your first question. Why did I pick it? But Americans love, we talk about this a lot in our class, that strong individual that's going to go out and do it for himself or herself. Yeah. But that's not always true, right? You need other people. You need the sense of community. Um, and he brings that up where he sort of rounds out that idea of the strong individual um, or, or points out its shortcomings um, as far as the myth of American identity. I don't know. Is that fair to say? I mean, you have a more historical perspective on that. Well, it, it's... It's a good question. It's it's a really, really, really tricky question as well, because I don't even know how to put this. America is such a weird idea, which is kind of the basis of our course, right? It's so massive and so big and so by definition dividing. It doesn't feel like we should 
even like we shouldn't be like uh you compare us to something like europe obviously uh they have what this almost the same landmass all of continental europe plus some right mm-hmm. they have 100 million more people and 50 nations or whatever like it just it's so overwhelming that it i don't know i really feel that um and i guess what he's arguing is he, he what he's arguing is that there is a connection between all of us being american that is being lost in some way, right? Right. Um, or that, that, I mean, what do you mean by lost? Like the sense of searching or the sense of what? Well, I, I think his kind of part of his argument is that whatever, like that our society is driving us to be apart from it, right? Like that's the end of his thesis, that when we, we find tragedy, we are able to kind of unify in some way. Right? I don't know. Well, I mean, and again, it, it, it's something to consider, and I'm not sure how many sophomores think about. Well, no, that's probably that's not fair to the, our students at all. Everyone thinks about what makes them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but on page 22, he's listing um, this theory of. Um, self-determination theory that the three things people need to get happy are autonomy, uh, a sense of uh, competence about what they're doing and a sense of connection to others. Um, And so when someone has all those autonomy, competence and community, um, that is the core of happiness, which counterbalance against, you know, sort of the American idea of, baked into materialism like the more you get there's more to it than that i guess essentially so that's part of his argument um and all this spins out of his own experience and so in the course of this book younger is weaving in his personal experience he grew up in a fairly seems like an affluent uh, suburb of boston not unlike many of our students but he had this sort of itch or wanderlust like what am i going to do and and how do I go out and sort of find my way in the society? Um, and that leads him to journalism and all sorts of other things. But coming back from Afghanistan, being under fire every day is not a pleasant thing. Uh, but he finds himself looking at that nostalgically. Um, and he talks to other people that were stationed over there. And even though they question the mission and question what they're doing, most of them want to go back and, and serve again rather than, you know, live a cushy life in America. And so he's really questioned. That's the that's the sort of guiding question that led to this book, I think. Sure. And I mean, and, and ultimately what he kind of sells on is war as a metaphor, right? And war as an act, right? And, and it's really easy. I assume I haven't read all the reviews, but I, I assume there's something there's negative reviews talking about this supporting the glory of war. And some uh, we, of our students brought that, brought that up in their right. journals, right? And so uh, what he's really addressing, I guess... But I don't think he's glorifying it no. like it's good and noble to die for your country, pro patria mori, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But he's... The glorious part of the war is the sense of dependency or community that it brings. It's the community, absolutely. Uh, I think... I was trying to put this quote down, but 
It's from Welcome to Nightvale, an episode called Best of, uh, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Craner, Joseph Fink, and read by Cecil Baldwin. But he goes, uh, he's talking about Pearl Harbor, and he goes, they've attacked us. Well, not us per se, but people thousands of miles away that we'll never meet, but us nonetheless, right? That's what it is. That's yeah. a call to arms. That's right. what it means for us, right? And it's the rhetoric that George W. used after 9-11 that we have been attacked. Well, no, people in New York specifically, but... We're Americans, and that means something to us. And he's saying, I mean, Younger is saying that without those kinds of call to action, we lose our sense of identity, right. kind of. Right. Um, so we need that, that something that unifies us, and war does that because you're literally depending on someone else for your survival. So it's not glorification of war, like we're conquering and killing and taking over, but more of a... Um, yeah, the, that sense of community or unified purpose that war can illicit Uh, yeah i would say so and in that case it brings up tribalism uh which is that i mean we can start at the very beginning it starts with ben franklin uh, and ben franklin talking about the number of people who run off and join native american tribes which the historiosity of we could talk about a little bit but it's a metaphor in some ways i don't think it happened as often as people say and specifically talking about philadelphia which had a really good relation with the native americans anyway is different than say boston because or is that because they were quakers or i mean how much were the quakers conquerors compared to other well does i mean that play into it at all and that just came to mind when no, it's a, it's a good question. It's because of William Penn. Like when he is granted the land, which will become Penn's Woods, Pennsylvania, uh, he actually then goes to the natives in the area, makes a separate treaty with them. And Philadelphia is one of the few colonies early on that has free access between the Native Americans and the people. So you were just as likely to see, you know, uh, someone from the Iroquois Confederacy walking on the streets of Philadelphia at times as you would a Philadelphian. Now, eventually, yes, it is the Quakers, but their openness does come back to bite them because a lot of people from other colonies come, they don't like the natives and they can't get violent. Um, But I mean, there's a reason why you hear more of those stories than say Boston, where after the first wars with, (laughs) with King Philip and that kind of thing, uh, they expel all native Americans and they become very much the other. Um, So there are stories. I mean, we, we've, we read some kind of native American narratives where people have joined the camp sometimes willingly, sometimes not. Right. (laughs) And, I mean, we can get into it, but this is that also kind of feeds into the idea of the noble savage and a whole bunch of historiosity, which he glosses right over more to talk about a sense of belonging. Right. Yeah. So is that, would you say that's a failure or a flaw in his argument? I don't think it's his argument. I think it's a bad example. Do you? Yeah. Because, you know, I would say if, for example, if you are living in Jamestown, there's no more place where there should be. <laughs> tribe right people are dying by the tens of like by by the hundreds and by the end of a decade almost ten thousand people have gone to jamestown and there's a population of less than 1500 right so that is the kind of thing he's talking about exactly people join the native americans because there's actually food <laughs> yeah <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah now that you say that it is interesting i mean it's an interesting stat that he includes later that i didn't know that um Per capita, the Native American, American Indians are um, serve more in the military armed services than any other demographic group in America. Um, and the, so that that's an interesting comment. But yeah, now that you're saying that, it does sort of seem shoehorned in. Like, that why, why do you have to use this example of, the, of some tribal community being attractive? 
other than literally it's a tribe in, in American Indian terms. Well, and, and, and it also just becomes problematic in that Amerindians, depending on where we are and when we're talking, are more accepted or not. But you also have to think about just mass. Philadelphia was probably the biggest city in America at the time with about 30,000, 40,000 people. But you're also then talking about a nearby Native American population of a quarter of a million, right? And so in some ways going like he in some ways almost I don't want to say he denigrates the Native Americans, but they were the more advanced, more stable civilization. They had to figure it out as far as living in that area, right? And, and so living you, on that land. And so if you were on the verge of homelessness and possibly had debts piling up, but you could do labor, yeah, go work with the Native Americans. Why not? Um, and we see that in other places too, like Savannah beforehand, they didn't allow slavery. It was all prison labor until they kicked out Oglethorpe. Um, but you have interactions with the Savannah Indians pretty early on. And it, what changes is an Anglo-Saxon sense of whiteness. My question early on though, is why do they not consider then things like Puritanism a tribe? Puritan exactly. Right. Which is one of the most strict city on a hill, Jonathan Edwards Us versus them kind of, yeah. Why not? The Quakers, I just guess, have a much looser confederacy. They eventually fight slavery. They, all the good things, right? Read Redeker's book. Um, but it's just, it seems like he's picking and choosing, maybe because he wanted to use the word tribe. So he's bringing his name to the That's a fair point. Uh, yeah, the, the conservatives, or not the conservatives, the, the Puritans um, in Boston, absolutely tribal. And so... I'm sure people could speak glowingly of the positives of that. Right. But he doesn't. He doesn't mention that. Yeah. And I mean, so there is. I mean, the get a bad rap these days. Yeah. Well, but. because for a lot of reasons. Those <laughs> uh, witch burnings. Well, I was, I mean, we could, I was talking to this, I guess it's a tribe uh, with my wife. Is there any more American organization than Alcoholics Anonymous? And I mean, I mean that in a good way, like because I know it does really help people. But there's no gray area; it's black and white. You know, appeal to a higher authority. You can never drink again. How long can it be, right? And what does it do immediately? Forms that allegiance, forms that tribe, forms that group. You have someone you depend on. Mm -hmm. And again, for all the people it helps, there's no. I should drink less. No, it's none. It's black and white. It's very puritanical in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Another, another podcast or another book. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's another story we can tell one day. But um, from here, where do you want to go? Just it, it's such a complex narrative in some ways. Yeah. So he, he sort of he talks about his own sort of restless beginning, um, and uh, he tells an interesting anecdote. I think it's interesting. I don't know if the kids did or not. Because I got to think that some of our students are having that same restlessness. Uh, he goes hitchhiking across the country, pretty much admits he's underprepared for it, uh, and is near starving at one point after he gets a ride and he's on an exit ramp somewhere with his backpack on. And this sort of sketchy guy comes up to him and younger sort of going through his mind, like, where's my knife in my pack? Do I need to you know, bow up and fight this guy? What's going to happen? And the guy starts talking to him. Clearly, the guy is down on his luck um, and... And the guy ends up giving him a sandwich, like giving him the the food, that, the only food the guy had for the day. Um, and Younger is blown away by that. And it's really stayed with him over the time. So the idea that there is something that this homeless man or nearly homeless, I think he was living out of his car, mm -hmm. um, saw in Younger 
as a bond, as part of, oh, you're one of me, I'm going to help you out and give you my food. And he uses that for a metaphor. So what are we willing to sacrifice? That's part of his definition of tribe. Um, who are you willing to sacrifice things that are precious to you for? And that's a thread throughout. So whether that's a group that's in war-torn Europe or whether that's, um, what are some of the other examples he uses? Yeah, we, we, he talks about the Balkans, right? right? He talks about being in Afghanistan. I mean, and he, he does give some other interesting examples from his own travels across the country. Uh, but that's 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 kind of the thesis, right? That, that's, that's his... Uh, that and Restrepo seem to be what turned him on to this subject. Yeah, and so that, again, that seems contrarian to the idea of American independence, but um, who are you willing to share with, essentially? Um, but that's not a word we would assign with the American identity. Like, we're a nation that shares. No, it's all about independence. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think we are getting to the core of his argument and something else I would guess caused him to write this is political divides now, right? It feels like not only that we're further apart than ever before, but we're less willing to work towards a common goal. Right. And, you know, you look at uh, like uh, how people vote in Congress and it seems more like a hundred percent of the time they vote only along their own party lines. There's less compromise and political identity becomes so overwhelmingly dominant that it's almost assumed that your neighbors have your political views and that kind of thing, which, you know, ironically seems very tribal. I don't know. No, it's totally <laughs> tribal, um, but also damaging to the nation as a whole, right? That divisiveness. That's right. And I guess I thought maybe that's why we get more buy-in right now, um, because we're living in this time of divisiveness. Um, we've just gone through a pandemic where, I mean, certainly one of the lessons I learned is that you need other people. Um, yeah. But it didn't resonate with the kids that way, at least not majority of them. I don't know. What did you think? Or how did you imagine they would read this? Because you were coming to it with fresh eyes. I had a lot of hopes and expectations. Well, I think it hits our generation and your generation. I guess we're a little bit different in age. Uh, differently. Like, I don't know how old he is. But he's some, a little, I think he's maybe early late 60s, 50s, early 50 60s, 59, okay. close to 60, maybe, yeah. Because so earlier I talked about uh, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, which talks about how major organizations like, you know, the Moose Lodge and uh, bowling leagues have fallen apart in the last few decades, right? And to me, this seems in some ways very much like that. You know, it's, it's I hate using this as a derogatory thing, but it's boomer culture talking about how the way when they were growing up, everyone was a part of organizations. And as that fades away, people don't have a sense of place. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's essentially the argument in a nutshell. And yet, you know, obviously the Girl Scouts of America have shrunk, but the Boy Scouts are now co-ed and their numbers are going up because having co-ed organizations is a good idea. That seems like a good thing, right? And being the, more inclusive of a tribe. Exactly. Right. And the other complaint I hear from parents who are older than me is everyone has to do so many extracurriculars that the kids are overwhelmed and we're overwhelmed as parents. That seems like we're putting too much tribalism, making sports teams. That, that, that's exactly what we're talking about. So part of me is skeptical, is like social networking, social media, that kind of stuff makes more connections 
And yet, like, I might have a thousand Facebook friends, but that doesn't mean I communicate with them. I still communicate with the same couple dozen people I've done for years, right? And then you get a little bit of extra kick when you have big family news. Right. But I also don't play a lot of online games where I know there's a lot of community. And the younger generation probably does have Discord servers with their friends where they communicate constantly. And so I just, I, I, I don't know where this book lands with them because maybe this is a generational thing that I just don't understand. Maybe, yeah. And maybe, and another, and I mentioned this before, but part of the idea I wanted to teach this was, was the idea of sacrifice. So as we're talking about, we, we're still in Afghanistan. Right. You know, t- almost 20 years later. Um, but that doesn't touch most of the lives of our students. And I think that's Younger's point too, that there's a certain group of people that are sacrificing and then having PTSD when they come back because we're there, their tribe, they're essentially protecting and defending our tribe, but they're not part of our tribe anymore. That's right. And that's a fair point. Um, but again, I don't know how that resonates. Didn't seem to resonate with the students like I hoped it would. And I just don't know how to bring them that message in that way. Because again, like when we talk about, about World War II, for example, I do the lesson in three parts, the war in Europe, the war in Asia, and then the war at home. And the war at home is complete mobilization. And, you know, women are working and minorities are working, giving them more rights after the war. And we have like 500 or 450,000 Americans who die overseas. And that's a lot. And a half million casualties are wounded on top of that. And so when people come home, literally American society changes to accommodate them. And they want to hear what's going on at home. And they're watching those newsreels. But... I just don't know how we make that relevant because even recently as we're recording this, which will come out about two weeks later, we just went through a series of bombings where the Israelis were bombing, you know, Palestinian territories. They uh, blew up the building that housed Al Jazeera and the Associated Press. Like it's, it was a real goings on. Now there's a ceasefire. When it was happening, I saw a lot of social media traffic, but now we're just moving on. Like I, I know I had former students who were fighting in the Israeli military. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, you know, and we don't have that sense of maybe, maybe it's that there's too much out there, but we just don't have that sense of lastingness. Yeah. Um, and it's strange too, that he thought teaching this in a pandemic or on the ends, well, let's hope we're coming out of this pandemic, yeah. um, that, that, that idea of sacrifice or that, uh, need to connect would have landed differently. I don't know. Maybe we're just all so damn tired that we're just. Like you said, we just want to move on. We don't want to think about that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you can certainly see it in, the, in our classrooms as our school sort of unrolled and became more open as far as um, having kids back on campus and going from hybrid to in-person over the course of the year that this is a tribe, obviously, and, and we need each other that way, and we got through it that way. But yeah, I don't know. It, it was I also wonder a lot if... to think about. I also wonder if Younger is mistaken in that there was ever, a, 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 like, over the course of our, I don't know how far you'd want to go back, if you want to go back to Jamestown, 400 and some odd year history, 414 year history, if there really was a sense of tribe in America at any point, right? Like, maybe World War II is, like, the weird anathema to our entire theory 
uh, World War One as well, like that that the forty year period. In that way, that you know, because of unionization and the GI Bill, there was this wave of the middle class that seems to be fading. Mm-hmm. Because after the Civil War, there was not really tribalism. The Confederates maybe had some, but it's not like we had a unified country. And then when Reconstruction ended, it's not like it lasted, right? People would go to reunions and. But that's much narrower. That's not an America. That is, I was part of this battalion. We marched up this hill in uh, Gettysburg, so I'm going to reenact it till the day I die. Yeah, that's very different. So I wonder if our sense of federalism, our sense of division, is much more common, and that the boomer. And again, I know it sounds like I'm insulting him, but maybe he just grew up in that one small era where we were united as a country in a way we really aren't usually. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just looked it up. He's 59, so he's a few years older than I am. Um, yeah, maybe he's romanticizing this idea of being unified. Maybe it's impossible to be unified in that way. Um, and by the man's need to be tribal, you're, you're always going to have these divisions. There's always going to be an us versus them sort of dynamic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about it. It reminds me, I mean, if he's... 59 he's almost 60 so he was born the very i guess depends on where you cut off the the baby boomers or not but he's born in like 61 or 62 something Mm -hmm. like that and so he was coming of age during uh the end of vietnam right and so yeah it was there there is this sense of tribalism though you know interestingly i guess he doesn't really get into the rejection of the vietnam vets at the end which you'd think would be counter to his point yeah, and I'm just looking at some lines that I highlighted and, and had kids comment on in journals and papers, but um, page 111, the public is often accused of being disconnected from its military, but frankly, it's disconnected from just about everything. Um, and so in that way, it's a it's a criticism, and he goes on to list farming, mineral extraction, gas and oil production, uh, cargo transport, logging, fishing, infrastructure construction. All industries that keep the nation going are mostly unacknowledged by the people who depend on them most. And I think I remember it. I don't know if you're around um, that day in class. But I went through and asked the kids, do you have a connection to anyone in farming, anyone in mineral mining, da, 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 da. And no, they didn't. And so his point that way is valid, Mm -hmm. that we are disconnected. That's sort of a good thing, right? In that... Yeah, because mining is damn hard work and be glad that you don't have to go down in the mine to to pay their bills. But there's that sense of who is sacrificing for that comfort. Well, and I also don't know what how do I put this? What the what the point of that argument is, because, you know, like watching Friday Night Lights, I get the feeling that there's pretty strong tribalism between the high schools. All right. Like. We're Marist, our rival is BT, our rival is Oconee County. Like, we do have rivalries. That's a sense of tribalism. It is. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think going back to sort of my definition of good literature, good literature allows you to see things from other points of view. Sure. Maybe, and when there's studies that, you know, it, it enhances your sense of empathy. So maybe, maybe the kids on some level or students or readers of anybody will. Yeah, I don't have anyone in the military in my family, but man, I didn't know how hard it was for them to come back um, yes. or, or some sort of sense like that. Uh, and you, and again, that's just part of being young, too. You don't know things until you know, like you don't know how hard it is to be a waiter. But then go try to do you know dinner service 
when the okay. restaurant slammed that you're going to tip your waiter more next time because living through it's very different. Yeah. Everyone um, should work it. Working food service for at least a week or two. Oh God, it'll kill you. You'll hurt in places you didn't think you could hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and I also so from that sense, I think it's good. Yeah, to expose them to that or get them to think about that. And and I will say too that we literally did this the last week of class, which is probably not the time to introduce a new work or. you know, minds are on it in other places at that point. Yes, but we're not teaching to make friends, Mike. And, <laughs> you know, but I would say, interestingly, that's why I think this book would be interesting based on another country, right? Like, because if you're French, you have an identity that is French. You've been in, like, war much more often, and you define yourself against the Germans. Why? Because there was hardship in your own country, right? We've mobilized before, but we've never really had an invasion since 1812. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also different, Right. Um, if you know, and that's why I think one of the most interesting chapters was when he was talking about being in Sarajevo and the, the war then, because these are people who were living through a conflict and they feel a distinct sense of unity with, you know, I one the I forget the woman's name, but she didn't have much food for her birthday, but she had a little bit of sugar, no eggs. She had eggs, so she made pancakes for right. everyone because right. that was a way she could share it. And that I totally that that that's an argument I see, you know. Uh, when Bosnia, Herzegovina, and you know when Kosovo, all these small countries started splitting off, then I can totally get his argument about having a sense of nationalism because they literally were creating a nation out of nothing, and it wasn't easy and it was often quite rough. So how do you find a, a nation state? Well, that's how you find a nation yeah. state. And he, he goes into it, and the, the novel of the book is. Um, fairly apolitical i mean he's not picking a side and he talks about in the chapter calling him from mars near the end he talks about how both political parties in america the left and the right uh, liberals and conservatives have their roots in sort of deep anthropological rational ideas mm-hmm. so the idea of the um, conservatives being concerned about um people that are not bearing their fair share um, and then the liberals being concerned about a more of a social safety net um, so I'm just I'm all that's to say that he doesn't really he raises the issues and and points out the problems and the origins of them um, but doesn't really prescribe a clear solution I don't know what, what did you think about that Nick I'm with you I, I... And maybe, maybe that's just not an to. answer. Yeah, maybe it's just getting us to think. It's good. Well, and uh, we just lived through an election and a pandemic. I, I don't feel like, maybe I'm just cynical on the whole idea of a unified America at the moment. And, you know, I mean, we haven't done this, but we had students who read Watchmen. It always reminds me, like, that's his general argument, right? He sets up a global catastrophe to unite the world. Um which there is something intriguing about, right? You know, maybe there's a reason why every generation, another World War II video game, World War II movie, World War II book comes out. Because, and I, I think it's generally misinterpreted, it's the time we took over the world. No, it's the time we were Americans, punctuation mark, right? And I think that's an important idea. It's fighting clearly evil, an evil empire. I mean, it doesn't get more black and white than that. No, it's, right? it's very clear. Uh, now... <laughs> 
you know, it's 80 years out. We're looking at it more warts and all, and it's something. But, you know, in some ways, Vietnam is the counterpoint because by the end, people were unified against the war. Uh, and it's all the sadder that, you know, our interest in the Iraq war and the Afghan war have, has fizzled. Because, again, no one talks about it. I don't right. know. Because you don't have to, right? Mm-hmm. Or most of us don't have to. Um, and, yeah, I guess if, if there's any point that comes across loud and clear that we need to be concerned for how to integrate service members into society. Yeah, absolutely. So, overall, you sounded like not only were you disappointed on the reread, um, you still found stuff you enjoyed. It just didn't resonate with the students. Yeah, I think that's fair. And even talking about today, I'm just thinking like, yeah, this is good. There's a lot of good points here that thematically connect on what we do. So your point about if we taught it early in the year and sort of set up a theme of tribalism, I mean, that would play well in the course because that's that's politics and history right there. Yeah, 100%. Um, that's American identity right there. Um, and the idea of service and war and sacrifice, those are all in the founding of our nation so that that could be an interesting way to approach it um or maybe it's just a book of its time and it and it doesn't hold up as far as i mean the issues i think are still very much with us but maybe this isn't the vessel or the the work to bring those up in class i wish there was a thinky think piece in the atlantic or new yorker about this because if it was a 20 page version it's like day one in class, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, it, it does a great TED talk on this. Maybe we should just show the TED talk next time. Well, but, but like, that's what it is. Cause to me, like I said, at the beginning, it would be a different discussion than we usually do, but it did give us a good discussion. We talked very little about the book itself, more about the idea. And that's, right. that has validity, that sure. has weight. And that's kind of how I think we could do it next year. Um, at the beginning to talk about what is American, then almost again at the end. Uh, to talk about this idea of tribe and whether or not it's a positive idea, a negative idea, an aggressive idea. Like, I will say, though, like I had a lot of people I know in the military, and that is like a fraternity in many ways that you just don't get rid of. Uh, and you understand why. How You know, there was that wave of early Afghan movies that come out, like The Hurt Locker and stuff. Um uh, Three Kings. Three Kings was the one I was trying to think of. Yeah. yeah. Where how do you relate? Well, you can't, and the you know there's haunting uh, scene of uh, you know the, the main character walking down the cereal aisle, uh, and you don't know if he's really fighting PTSD or just normalcy, but that that has weight, that has effort. As a book as a whole, it feels more like he had an idea and just wanted to see how far he could stretch it, um, to varying success. I, I think we can reintroduce the idea of more than just the book itself. I think as you're saying, and I had a conversation with a, a mayor's parent who was a surgeon in Iraq. Mm. Um, it would be really powerful, I think, if we could get some veterans from Iraq or Afghanistan in to talk about this book or talk about their integration in coming back. Totally. Um, parents oh, or this parent, this parent mentioned to me, like, yeah, I read this book and, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll still have to panic attacks that just seem to come out of nowhere. Um, and this person traces that back to, to their service. Yeah. So to put someone who had been there in front of the students is always powerful. 
So that, that might be just thinking out loud, an interesting way to incorporate the book. I agree. And the issues. I agree. And I, and I, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here only because I do think there's some really interesting stuff he gets to. Um, it just feels like he repeats the same points over and over again. So again, uh, the, maybe a Ted talk version would be a better, yeah. better buy. Uh, and if we want to have them read more kind of hard hitting journal and we do crack, crack hour or the perfect storm, uh, because I think those have a narrative that really picks up or, you know, well, they're much more readable and enjoy, I mean, cause they're more novelistic, I think. Totally. Definitely perfect storm is. Yeah, totally. I'll put you on the spot then, Nick. So today, right now. You have to decide whether we add this to the um, book list for next year or not. What would you say? If we do, we do it first term mm -hmm. because that's where I think it would have more value. I think you you already touched on at the end of the term, they're tired. They were burnt out, both of which were incredibly true. Uh, but further, I worry that they missed a lot of the subtlety because, well, they already had made opinions. We'd ask them what it means to be an American for the last two years or for the last two exams. Uh, as a whole, I think they can get value out of it because they don't read this kind of work very often. And he makes a compelling argument. And sometimes there's value in disagreeing with a critical right. argument as well. Right. Which um, I don't know that we, I mean, I think we do that well in our class, but that's, a good point to make. Uh, so, with that in mind, I would say, uh, sure. I think we okay. can. I think it's usable because it's brief. His point is clear, and it's engageable. We just, I think, have to make a, a, a real job to have them challenge it, even if they like it. You need to be able to challenge this work, and I think it's one that we can engage in in a way that, like, how are you going to engage with the perfect storm? It's something that happened, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, or um, doesn't challenge you, right? Right, or, or David McCullough, some kids we did read the, the Johnstown Flood. Incredible book based on real accounts and diary entries. He's not making a historiographical argument. He's telling a story. It's harder to engage with that in a critical way like you could with this. Right, book. yeah, that's a good point. And that, I'm thinking through this, if we could get a guest speaker or some veterans, it would be all in on that. Um, because I think that would help personalize it in a way that, I don't know that it connected to some of those anecdotes, but if you get a person in class that was serving our country overseas in combat, that would that would make a lasting effect. 100% agree on that. Yeah, we need to do that. So, um, that was the end of season one. Ooh. We did... What a season. What a season. This is a dozen episodes, uh, which... I don't know how you thought we would do our first season, damn it. But no, I'm just glad to, you know, get in that many books and talk about it. And had some great guests. We um, had some uh, really fun. And I hope, uh, I assume it's mostly student, students who are reading this so that you can get through their books. <laughs> uh, I hope this is making you more interested in reading and teaching you how to be critical. Uh, we're going to take something like uh, two and a half months off over the summer. Um it's not, and for you guys, it's not even going to feel that long because we're going to come back in August. Uh, right. So it's going to be like a month off. Uh, but don't worry, we are coming back. Uh, Mike and I are working on getting new guests and finding out new books. And I will make a deal with the audience that I haven't told Mike about, but you know. All right, exciting. 
Uh, Breaking news. I want you guys, we'll come back in August, The whatever the first uh, Thursday in August is going to be, uh, which is, I have a calendar, I already have a schedule, August 5th. For those of you in our audience who prove that you've gotten the most new listeners, we'll let you pick a book we do. Oh, cool. I like that. Okay. Uh, share it on social media, get people to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you are. But the one who can prove you've gotten the most um, and you could just email it to the link on the website or email it to us directly. We'll let you pick a book for next season. Next season, we're planning on going the whole year. Uh, we might take off one month, but that will still be 24 new episodes All right. uh, in season two of required reading. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. It's been great. <laughs>